I'm Sasha Sagan, and this is Strange Customs. The planet, the one I mentioned before with the creatures, it's not enormous and it's not tiny. The creatures, the ones with the funny customs, they used to move around the surface in significant groups to find more resources, more safety, and some still do. But now they mostly settle in one place. But they do this thing now where they change location on the surface, not for survival or resources. Sometimes when they arrive, they can't communicate well with the other members of their species. The climate and the other life forms are unfamiliar. That's why they go. They experience it as a very large change, but they're still just on their one little planet. They very rarely leave the planet. And they just stay on the surface, but they use their senses, they just have five, to experience different parts of the surface. It's just one planet, but seeing other parts of it changes them somehow, helps them understand. Imagine if they could see their whole galaxy. This person that I'm looking at across my computer. I don't even know what country, continent, state he's in right now because he is a real life adventurer. You really are like a a modern day explorer. Do you feel that way? Mm -mm. I definitely do explore and I do (laughs) adventure. This is my friend Jedediah Jenkins. He's an author and he writes about his travels around the world. But the concept of an explorer to me is like going where no one's been before. If I was going to Mars, I would feel comfortable with that term, but I'm going to like Paris. So (laughs) so it's like I really enjoy travel and discovery for myself. And so I'm a personal discoverer. I I think the journey of my subjective experience is very exciting. (laughs) (laughs) I think so, too. And a lot of other people agree with you. I mean, this is a multi-generational story. Can you give us a little background about your parents' journey and just like how you got to be like a professional traveler? Well, my parents were in college during the Vietnam War, and my dad graduated in a, in a small liberal arts school called Alfred, which is in Alfred, New York, in the 70s. He was from the only public housing unit in Greenwich, Connecticut, which, if you're familiar, is a very rich place. So he grew up six people in a one-bathroom apartment, um, government-subsidized housing surrounded by mansions. So he had this really strange uh, juxtaposed experience. And it was the normal thing to do as a young person to hate America in the 70s. So he was, like, complaining And an older janitor at the college said, you don't even know America. You're from Greenwich. You've barely even left New England. Like, what are you talking about? And that really got under my dad's skin because he knew he was right. Mm. He doesn't even really know where the idea came from, but he decided he was going to walk across America because walking, you meet people. And he had this giant Malamute Alaskan Husky mixed dog that was going to go with him. He was going to go from New York to New Orleans and then go up because you have to kind of, if you're walking, 
skip the great deserts. And the only way to skip yes. the great deserts is to go up almost like Lewis and Clark through Idaho and then across Oregon or else you'll just roast. Yeah. So anyway, he's planned this whole V and he walks to Washington, D.C. and walks into the National Geographic headquarters. So he finds this Nat Geo reporter's name and back in the day, like the phone book and just calls him, meets with him, says, I think you should give me a camera and let me write about this. And they did. <laughs> and they gave him a camera and a big backpack and like supplies. And they said, take your time. The longer you take, the better. Because the longer, the harder the trip is, right. the more interesting it is and the more time you spend with people. So then he walks. It takes him two years. And he lives in Appalachia and he lives in a trailer and like washing dishes to make money and mm. just extraordinary stories and ends up in New Orleans where he's going to stop and write his first article for National Geographic explaining the walk he's just done and then teeing up the final walk west. And while there, he meets this dark-haired beauty in the Baptist Theological Seminary, which is my mother, and they fall in love, you know, and then my mom is like, I love you, but I'm not walking to Oregon. Are you insane? Like, you're handsome-ish, <laughs> but we're not doing that. Anyway, she's like, okay, well, I love you, but I need God to give me a sign. She's decided that day she's going to break up with them. They go to church, and the name of the sermon of the church is, Will You Go With This Man? And it's the biblical story of Abraham looking for a wife for his son Isaac, and then he sends out a servant. This is very strange, olden times. But he sends out a servant to yeah, go yeah. look for a wife, and he finds this woman named Rebecca at the well. And it's all about, will Rebecca go yeah, with yeah. this man? Right. And Rebecca says yes in the Bible. Blah, blah, blah. And my mom is like, well, that's clear. So she says yes. Was your dad religious at this point? Not really. He kind of became okay. religious at like, he went to like a spiritual revival or whatever. And he was, because he's from Connecticut, like, right, right. it's just less up there. And he got swept up in that. And then my mom was very religious. Obviously, she's in seminary. So I've always like, did my dad plant that sermon? Because he seems like the kind of guy that might. So anyway, they they agree to go for it. They get married, and then they begin a three-year walk from New Orleans to Florence, Oregon. Hundreds of people show up in Oregon when they're walking into the Pacific Ocean, and there's helicopters, and there's press, and everything. And then my parents are on the cover of National Geographic about that in August of 1979. It was a whole thing. So then I'm born in 82. My parents get a divorce as many swept up love stories end, you know, and I'm the son of travelers and writers and adventurers and people who say yes to the yeah. like excitement of it all. And I'm approaching 30 and I'm like, what is my life? I definitely felt like I was living a life that was handed to me. I would just walk through the next open door. I never like made a real choice to do anything. It was just like, what comes next? And then as a 30 approach, I was like, I want to choose my own life. I want to be in the driver's seat and do my own thing. And my dream was, I want to be a writer. All my heroes are writers. 
Now, mind you, I didn't even clock that my parents are writers mm. and that they're big adventurers. It just like was so deep in the like limbic system of my brain. So anyway, I decide I want to be a memoirist, but I'm too young. That's embarrassing to write about your life when you're like 28. <laughs> I mean, it's not, but you know what I mean? I feel like my heroes are like 60. And so I, I'm like, I'm going to write about, what can I write about that's objectively interesting, even if I'm a mediocre writer? And I'm like, I'll go on a big adventure. So I decide to ride my bicycle, originally from Alaska to Patagonia along the Pacific coast. And I'm like, wow, then I can tell an adventure story and then whatever, people will be interested maybe. And then I'm telling my parents about it and they're like, like father, like son. And I'm like, oh my God, I have accidentally mapped out to do exactly what you did. I swear to you, <gasps> Sasha, I did not wow. realize I did that. That's so profound in a way, because I don't know, I think there is something about that. Whatever you grow up with, it just feels normal. And you're not looking at it from the outside being like, this is kind of unusual. Yeah. It feels so natural that it doesn't feel like this unusual thing that you are also doing that your parents did. Because the world, when you're a kid, is the world your parents show you. Exactly. And may, I mean, it's, it's both, you know, nature and nurture are like a tango because, right. you know, they say you split identical twins and they both work at the movie theater right. or, you know, like right, they, right, right. somehow they're both doing the same thing. It's like my parents had that. What's on the other side of the mountain? What's that? What's over there? I need to know. I need to know. And I definitely have that. And so then I, I rode my bicycle, but I ended up starting in Florence, Oregon, where they finished once I realized I was like starting a legacy with my family, I was like, oh, well, I'll start where they finished and go to Patagonia. And then maybe if I have a son or a daughter or a niece that wants to like go on a great adventure, she'll start in Patagonia and sail to Mars. Yes. <laughs> Like talking about these big adventures, like you think about like most species on this planet, like if they're going to go really far, you're going to go get some food or you're going to mate or you're going to be more comfortable, safer, warmer. If you were to explain to an extraterrestrial, not even just these big adventures, but just like going away for a week to a new city, like what is it that is so habit forming? And I'm just curious, like, how you would explain what that desire is, what we get out of it. Well, I would do my best to explain what I get out of it, because there is something in me that when I get into the routine of my life, I start to believe that my life is normal or my life is the only way things are. And when things don't mm. work or when things work in a certain way, I just assume it's always going to be that way. and the absence of new input creates almost just like a calcified machine. Mm. When you go on a trip for a couple days, you don't click into the mindset of a traveler. You're still you at home and you're like, well, I'll water my plants next Thursday. So I'm still actually cosmically in my house. I've just removed myself from it for a moment. I'll be back. I could even park on the street. Street sweeping is until Friday. If you leave for a month, you are gone and you don't even know what you're going to be doing in three weeks, at least how I travel. I mean, I have a loose dream. There's something about the shift of 
just I might meet somebody who says, hey, I have a boat. Want to go to Scotland? And I would be like, <laughs> yes, I do. You know, like that. Being in that mindset. If you go missing, I'm going to be like, there is somebody with a boat in Scotland. No. And we gotta find By the way, them. I really do share my location with like five people all the time. Okay, good. good. That's actually very It brings me joy. Go on. Go on. <laughs> so anyway, there's something about the, the like clicking into flotation mode where it is like engaging all of your senses. You know, like sensory deprivation tanks when you lay so yes. still, you can like reach a new level of like consciousness and feeling your body and feeling your own thoughts, almost like meditation. Mm -hmm. When you get into true float travel, you are so aware of the world and what might happen and your plans are so loose that I really do believe it is one of the most alive feelings in the world. So I would say to an extraterrestrial, first of all, I would say evolutionarily, some of us are designed to be desperate to know what's on the other side of the hill because there's such a thing as famine. And if you only eat what's in your valley and you never tr taste the berries over the hill, when the famine comes, everyone's dead. So there's got to be somebody who's so curious, they're willing to risk eating a poison berry to know if there's food over the hill. You just want to know. And other mates, like the, the desperate desire to know what's over there is always going to be in a portion of the population. And then on the flip side, there's always going to be a section of the population that doesn't want to leave because some people that go up the mountain do eat that berry and are poisoned. And they know Uncle Billy was poisoned and they'll tell you that over and over again. So they're like, we're not going anywhere. We're staying right here. And I know a lot of people like that. Absolutely. And it's, I mean, this is very parallel to like the theory about like some people are, have to be night owls and some people have to be morning larks so that there's almost always somebody awake to keep mm -hmm. an eye on things. The way those very deeply entrenched personality traits pop up in different people is fascinating. The thing that I really like so deeply agree with is like when you're talking about travel as a way to absolutely destroy the idea that our way whatever our way is is the only way and mm. like how enlightening and how clarifying it is that there are so many different ways when you go somewhere else so like in a fantasy world where there's just like unlimited <laughs> really excellent free education for anyone who wants it how would the society be different if for example as a thought experiment study abroad was mandatory oh Oh my God, my dream, my true dream. If we, if we could like properly tax the world in a way where people could just study abroad for six months or a year, senior year, junior year, it was very profound to me. I went to a private Christian high school and we had a sister school in the suburbs of Paris. Mm. And so freshman year and, and junior year for spring break and a week after I would go to Paris and live there with a family. Oh, wow. And when I was a freshman, I was 14. Yeah. And I, and I, and I was in French one. So I was like, we, oui. that's all I knew. <laughs> and I'm like dropped and I'm not in Paris. I'm in like deep suburbs. Right. Okay. So there's no tourists. There's right. no one speaks English. And so I'm literally, you know me, like I'm the most talkative person in the world. Everyone thinks I'm a mute. I'm just walking around. <laughs> So I was probably so cute, you know, just everyone's like, he's so shy. I'm like, no, I just literally don't know what you're saying. 
it was so eye-opening to me. That was really influential, I think, in my development of just seeing how different it is over there. Was it your first time in another country? Yes. If we could make that mandatory. I, the only way I think xenophobia yes. succeeds is lack of exposure. Yes. If If you really saw these people and met them, you know, there's all these people that are coming to the southern United States border. It's like mothers with children. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Every right wing Christian mommy in a gated community, if she met that woman, she would weep. I, yeah. I do believe this. Most or if of them. she has to flee with her children and show up somewhere safer. She would do it. Yeah. Hundred percent. Exposure creates empathy ninety nine percent of the time, you know. That that's what I believe deeply. And so how do we get that money? Let's find it. Yeah, seriously. No, like, so, I mean, it's so interesting because you talk about, and we have certainly in our many years of friendship talked about you being brought up very religious, very conservative in a lot of ways. I mean, it's almost this paradox where like you're at this Christian school, but they're sending you to live in another country with a family that presumably, I mean, of the sister school, I'm sure also shared a lot of the same values, but it's in this other place. And that is sort of, to me, the just going somewhere different and seeing other people who live differently. That is often for a lot of people, the first thread that gets pulled of like a change in a philosophy that is very specific or very narrow. Um, and it starts to fall apart. And I don't know if you could speak a little bit to your journey and how it's changed, maybe some of the preconceptions that you had, at, you know, before you got on that plane at age 14. You just unlocked a memory for me that I truly didn't know was in there. Wow. The brain is it's in some fold and one, it was in yeah. one neuron in a back drawer and you, it just goes, boop. <laughs> I remember being 14 with my French host mother. She was, this kid was at school or something. So I was driving around with her in the world's smallest car. I'm yes. from America. We drive Ford Explorers. She was driving a toaster with a, <laughs> with, she was driving a, a grocery cart with a creaky wheel and there are no lines in the road. I'm like covering my eyes. And we're driving around Paris and I tell her I want to see Notre Dame. And she's like, oh, okay, tourist attraction. And I'm like, I want to go inside and I want to say a prayer. It's the most famous church in the world. She could speak a little bit of broken English. And she was like, a prayer? Do you pray? And I was like, yes, I pray every day. And she was like, oh, I think she said, I've never met anyone who prays. <gasps> And she had never really been inside Notre Dame since she was a kid because it's just a, such a tourist place. Because I am from a Christian school in Nashville, Tennessee. I had never really met anyone who didn't believe in God. <gasps> that was such a moment of me being in France and looking around being like, okay, so people don't believe in the same God as me or in God in the way that I believe. But everyone seems to be okay. <laughs> like they're walking around. They've got baguettes. They seem happy. Hmm. That was, that's information. <laughs> Fire isn't raining from the sky. Yeah, that's so amazing. That's such an amazing moment to have this like moment at this iconic historic church and the revelation that you're with someone who does not mm. subscribe to the same view is so, I mean, that's a poem come to life. Oh, I know, I know, I know. And then, I mean, the, the, my journey to dismantling my evangelical upbringing is such a 
intricate one, which is uh, the root of a lot of my writing. It comes tied with being raised in a very traditional religious culture, evangelical Christianity. And it's evangelicalism is a very American creation. It's like mm. very ambitious. It's very strong. It's pull yourself up and, by your bootstraps. Yeah. And when you wake up in middle school realizing that your sexuality is a problem and what are you going to do about it? Then for many gay kids, you, you go two routes. If you're femininity is so pronounced and you're so fabulous and you're so picked on a lot of times you just say fuck it all i am a wild animal and i will i will rage against the machine because i have to because i cannot assimilate if you are somewhere else on that spectrum you will try your hardest to assimilate because you see the avenue that that is easier than risking total mm. exile and so you become obsessed with assimilation. And so I was like, I'm going to become the best Christian and the best boy and the best biblical scholar you have ever fucking met. Because I'm going to prove that whatever is innate inside me that is getting me in trouble is not going to stop me from being perfect. And I will like bulldoze through. So that doubled down on my, you know, that's why so many of these pastors in middle America are gay and they get busted on grinder. Right. Because they did what I did and they doubled down to be the best boy because they were so afraid of what they discovered when they were in seventh grade. They actually select that job. It's the same with Catholic priests, I believe. It just took me a long time. It took me really trying to do the evangelical lifestyle all the way, the celibacy, the praying for a woman, blah, 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 blah into my mid-20s to realize testing it against the universe to see if it really works. The philosophical virus immune system of Christianity at self-replication is a, is a really brilliant design because it's all about... Um, death to self, death to your own desires, like death to self and serve God and serve others. So what, what you want, give that to God and do what God wants. So when you want something in your deepest desire, like to like love and intimacy with a man, that is selfish. And so if the ultimate and selflessness is like in many ways an understandable virtue for many cultures. So you're like, wow, I'm so selfish that I care more about kissing a boy mm -hmm. than I do serving Jesus. And, you know, so it, be, it becomes this self-replicating shame. And then it's all these other things of like only, re, you know, study the Bible and all other things are relativistic. They're man-made. They're not from God. Mm -hmm. So other ideas are made up, whereas this is the revelation of God. And so you start to like think for yourself or read other writers or be inspired by other speakers. And then the, the immune system of the faith goes, well, they're, they're relativistic. They're just, they're at the whim of their own thoughts. They're not following God. They're following their own ideas. And so you're like, oh, maybe they're right. Maybe. So it just was, it's a lot of dismantling. That's why you, you meet deconstructed Christians in their twenties, thirties, even forties. And it is so difficult to take down a castle brick by brick because you have built, it is so, and it is going to pieces, there are going to be ruins your whole life that you're like living in because you don't even know 
how it permeated into everything and like it's like smoking in a in a house it's like in the walls So do you think that like seeing the world and seeing the way other people live and seeing differences is an antidote to that? I mean, not to put like too fine a point on it, but it's like this amazing thing where you, your parents, I think maybe primarily your mom raised you with this evangelical mindset, but because they were travelers and adventurers, it was like they also somehow gave you the way out. Yes. See, I think so often the truth is smuggled in with problematic ideas or the the truth is smuggled in with the problem. So just like the U.S. Constitution was written with white supremacy and slaveholding happening on top of it. And yet the truth was smuggled in. The, the true idea that all men are created equal is smuggled in. They don't even know what they're saying, but it is like truer than they even know. And it's going to come forth. And so I think my parents they they have a lot of truth in them of the that everyone is an individual and that everyone is beautiful and you just meet someone you walk across america no one is different like they really believe all that stuff travel is so important i want to go discover i want to see and then they have these other beliefs that they inherited or that are built on xyz fear that maybe it's my generation's job or my job to analyze and reassess and in my opinion elevate I don't know, because I'm, I am certain that I have beliefs like that, that sure. my children will be like, that is so deeply bad. Yeah, no, for sure. I can't wait to find out what mine are, but it's going to be some stuff that I really regret saying, I'm sure. <laughs> um, Good but, thing we have podcasts. But- Okay, so now your parents are getting older, you are writing, you have written two amazing books, you are now kind of going on these adventures with your parents and exploring from this other vantage point. How does travel fit into this next stage of what you're writing about and what you're thinking about? Well, you got me really thinking about your writing and your thinking really illuminates the customs the ceremonies, the traditions that we build naturally as humans. And some have grown very old and they've grown old enough to be called religions and others are chosen and built. And some are nationalism and whatever it is. We build those things in our own lives. And I realized when you invited me to be on this show, how not only did I follow in my parents' footsteps going on this big journey and writing about it and then becoming a writer through the journey, which is this like rite of passage into the job of our dreams, which is exactly what they did. That lit in me this desire to be intentional about my life, be intentional about becoming Mm. a writer. And then what type of person do I want to be? And that led me to to become what type of son do I want to be? And that led me to want to do these trips with my parents where I go on solo trips with them. And here I am doing what they did. When, when I graduated college, my dad took me on a solo trip. We motorcycled across America. Right after college, before I went to law school, and it was so special. And like, it is so different to be one-on-one with your parents rather than mm. them with, 
with a wife or with them, you know, both of them if they're married or whoever it is, like, or even with your other siblings. Your siblings and your, yeah. The, like, unique interaction of just the parent and the child for many days together is, it just builds this, like, specialness because every child wants to be seen by their parent. And especially yeah. if you have siblings and there's, you know, some like somewhere deep inside there is like, they didn't see me enough or I would, and to really be chosen. And then as the beautiful cycle of life shifts and the parents now are getting older and the, and the child is fully an adult and those roles are as grains in the hourglass fall shifting, mm. um, to choose your parent because every parent wants to be chosen by their child like do you love me like did I do a good job you know my parents did hurt me but everybody's parents hurt them in some way so it's like I but they really did love me and they did put the spirit of adventure and all these things in me and I want to honor that and I want to heal myself by knowing them the, the better mm. I know them the better I know myself and I know what I've overcome and what I want to improve and who I want to be. And I think a lot of times we don't even ask our parents those hard questions. When was your first kiss? When did you lose your virginity? What was your first job? Who was your best friend in high school? Were you scared about your career in your twenties or did you know what you want to do? Do you think you had children too early or too late? Like do people really sit down and interview their parents? No. Wow. So I've like really done that. And I'm, my new book is really all about this because I really want people to do that. If they have the opportunity, I mean, you of all people I know would dream to do that with your dad, Yeah, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm also so lucky because there is so, I mean, so many people lose their parents when they're young and there's like no right. information. And I have so much, I mean, there's so many things he wrote that I haven't yeah. even read yet. And like, I do feel very lucky that there is so much so true. of him in the world and not everyone gets that and i mean we've talked about this i've written about this also just like if you loved someone hundreds of years ago and they died unless you were like a count who had an oil painting of them you didn't have a picture of them you didn't have the sound of their voice mm. i mean we all have so much now of each other to, to hang on to, to look at, to listen to when someone's gone. And that is so new. And just imagine like loving someone and they die and you never hear mm. their voice again is so different. But what you're doing is like, you know, this is way more than just like, oh, I have a yeah. voice now. So how are you doing it? You're individually going with your parents on like road trips. Let's just assume for the nature of this conversation that you have affection for your parents. Maybe there's some complexity there, but you like them. Or you, you love them and sometimes you like them. <laughs> I think that if that is the case and they've lived to be 70 or 65, figure out a way to travel with them individually, that's something that they want to do. Like my mom always wanted to see Switzerland. And wow. she's kind of like, you know, she's in her 70s now. It's a little scary for her to like fly and... So, but it was just this really sweet opportunity for me to get to drive her around and help her know where to go in the airport, get the rental car, and then we just explored. And when I tell you, it was so fun. And just to get her out of 
like I was saying earlier, like out of her routine, there's something that happens where there will be an injury, a heart attack or something where they, most people like they, they don't age that gradually. There's something that happens and they just shift. They go Mm. from like your dad to a grandpa in like a month. And it's very jarring, especially when Mm. you don't live with them. This happened to my dad. So it was really reintroducing myself to him on this road trip. And it was, he also is like from a toxically masculine generation where it's hard for him to talk about feelings or whatever. It's, he won't look you in the eye. So mm. a road trip, you're shoulder to shoulder, you're looking forward. And we're doing a road trip of his youth uh, where he walks. So he has endless stories oh, and wow. it's really getting to know him. If your parents are not from the place where they raised you, go on a road trip to their childhood home and drive around the street they grew up on and let them tell you, whatever, this is where Billy Bob beat me up. Or I mean, they'll just be like such interesting stories you can't imagine. And it just brings your parents into this realm of humanity where they're not demigods out to get you or control you. They're just, they're just teenagers mm. who got older and pregnant. Okay, so if this were a new ritual, if this was like a thing people did, adult children, when their parents, let's say, retire or turn 70 or 75, if this were like a ritual where like you take a trip, each child individually with each parent who's alive and willing, and if this were a thing that people did and say, oh, I'm going with my mom on her. There's some long German word or something that means you're late in life adventure of the place you always wanted to go with your adult child, something like that. It's just all consonants and like 25 letters long. How would that change our society where people just have this adventure, um, this sort of reflective period with their parents, and that's a norm? Well, my hope would be that it brings back the respect and renown of elders Mm. because I don't know, probably post industrial revolution and certainly post the Silicon revolution. Like now to be an older person is to your elder is your child who is teaching you. Like it used to be the elder teaches you how to be Mm. in the world. This is how you do your taxes. Now the child teaches the adult. This is how you sign an email. This is how you attach a PDF. This is how you, Yeah, so this like the adult is the lost child and the child is the teacher. And that is such Mm -hmm. an upside down thing from the last, I don't know, million years. Do you think it's because technology has changed so quickly recently? I think it's it's the speed with which technology has changed and and that a child's brain being so malleable can learn something new. Like they can just open TikTok and piddle around with it and figure it out. Because their brain is just completely malleable, the neuro. Whereas in order to figure out TikTok, you have to override all your preconceptions of how other apps work and where the button is supposed to be and where the drop is supposed to be. Those things aren't there. And so you're having to override information rather than start blank and just intuitively figure it out. So that just Mm. slows you down. And then the cognitive load is so annoying, you give up. My dream is that taking this time because at least our parents in their golden era could be emotional elders. And just like, I don't know. I just really long for 
a time where getting older is exciting and you're like moving into your era of wisdom and love and then your children are going to honor you with these trips and they're going to blow your mind and you're just going to feel so cared for and excited and young again and young in the sense of exploration again not not in in the other yeah. ways but oh my god i love this i think it would be so beautiful i love this idea i can't wait to read what you write from these experiences i have one more question for you Because so much of our relationship with travel, it's like going around this one particular planet where there is so much to see and do. And if we're lucky, we get to see a very small portion of what there actually is. But I was thinking about you and your adventurous spirit. And would you leave the planet? Like if it was like a touristy, like a thing you could do as a tourist easily that didn't cost many millions of dollars, like would you go... I mean, you did mention visiting Mars towards the beginning of the conversation. Would you leave the planet, you know, for a visit? Abs- if you had for the a visit? Absolutely. And I consider yeah. leaving the planet like visiting Antarctica, which is like, I don't want to live there, but I want to see it. Like, I can't live there. But yeah. And if I did, I would be inside all the time. But like, I would like to lay my eyes on it. Mm. Maybe there's not going to be lush forests and animals to see, but just... My curious explorer mind wants to know, what does weightlessness feel like on the way? What is the gravity of Mars? Their day is almost like ours, but a little different. Like, what is an orange sky? I don't know. Like, those little shifts in general sensory experience would be such an adventure to me. And then I don't even know what it would teach me about what I take for granted. I mean, remember the Sandra Bullock movie, Gravity, where she's like hurtling through space? Mm -hmm. I'll never forget the last scene of that movie. Yes. Sorry for anyone who hasn't seen it where she... Spoiler alert. Mute. Fast forward. Spoiler alert, everyone. (laughs) Where she she lands on Earth and gasps a breath of air, which we haven't... We've been holding our breath in the audience for 15 minutes. And then you just like realize all you do is breathe delicious oxygen all day and you don't even think about it. Like, I walked out of that theater just looking at the sky. <laughs> Amazing. Oh my god! And it's like that. It's my husband John was like, "It's like the end of that movie is just like the beginning of Castaway." Like it's. Like, oh my god! What a good. <laughs> she's come so far, and we're like, "Phew! You're on Earth. Everything will be fine." And so many other stories of shipwreck and disaster are being stuck somewhere on earth but we just have this image of like oh at least she's on the planet she's going to be fine our sweet little home planet oh my god well it's just such a pleasure to talk to you jed i could just do it all day long i cannot wait to read every word of what you write about these adventures with your parents and anything you write if you go to mars (laughs) oh my god Now I get to talk to Dr. Jordan Jardin, a travel and tourism historian. So I'm, I don't know how far back you have gone in your studies in the history of human beings making their way around this planet, but it seems to me that in the earliest versions of it, it was migration for survival to find sustenance and perhaps more welcoming climates or more welcoming neighbors, perhaps. 
But what were the steps? What were the big landmark touchstone moments in the history of human travel to where we got to it as a recreation almost? I mean, you, you said it at the beginning, the first form of travel is, of course, just you know, if we take travel from uh, as going from A to B, it's just for survival. So if we if we take travel as a more as a form of leisure, I think there are two big steps that we should talk about. The first one is the Grand Tour. It's a practice from the 16th, 17th centuries. You have to picture an English aristocrat, 19, 20 years old. He's about to become a man, an established member of the nobility. And the, the final thing to do is to cross Europe, trying to discover a bit of Europe to become a, a more cultured man or woman. There were also uh, women in that period traveling and that was the first structured form of travel that involved an awful lot of pleasure and leisure and uh, discovering of trying to find exotic things. And after two or three months traveling through Europe, you would go back to where you, you were from and become an adult member. That's the first form. And if we jump across to the 19th century, that's where modern tourism really started. And by modern tourism, I mean a form of travel that is supported by infrastructures, railways, hotels, um, tour operators, mm. all the things that we still know today. So the idea of the Grand Tour almost sounds like it was like a coming-of-age ritual in certain ways among this very privileged class. And that, it, I mean, it almost reminds me of study abroad, this experience where you sort of go learn about the world, then when you return home, you know yourself more deeply and you carry that through the rest of your education and the rest of your life. I mean, how much of an impact on the communities and societies that these young people were returning to did this practice have? So you're absolutely right. I think we can we can definitely compare it to, you know, nowadays what we call a gap year or a year abroad. Right. It's about coming of age. It's about trying to find you, yourself somewhere else. And so when those aristocrats returned to London, how did it change London society to have these young men who would eventually come to have a great deal of power, having seen more of the continent than, than perhaps their, you know, a few generations back, their grandfathers did? As a historian, what I could say is the, what's very palpable in terms of sources is travel writing, is travel accounts. That would be a tremendously popular form of, of publication in the 18th century, I would say in particular. Those would become bestsellers. So someone would write about his amazing trip to the glaciers or near Mont Blanc in the, in the French Alps, and people would want to travel back um, onwards, you know, a year later, five years later. So that created generational understandings of Europe, of places, of nature, of mountains. And I think society, high society, would highly discuss that and would, um, it would just be a, a some form of social phenomenon. So basically, if you look at the numbers from the 1750s onwards, you had an exponential growth in, in, in travel to, to the continent. And so how and when... Did it become something more accessible to everyone else? As soon as you got these tour operators, someone basically organizing everything for you and giving you transport, accommodation, things to see, things to do. And as soon as you could do that in large numbers, of course, the price would go down. If you go to the 20th century, when as soon as uh, annual leave became a thing, uh, families would just uh, you know, flock to, to holiday destinations. 
So why do you think we crave it so much, especially over the last couple of years? I think for a lot of people who were lucky enough to get to go on a vacation once a year in a normal way up until the pandemic and then couldn't go anywhere for so long, the desire, I mean, my husband and I were talking about this concept of revenge travel, where just people, ourselves included, just being like, we are going to go anywhere we can go. We will pay whatever they're charging. We just have to get on an airplane and do something exciting because it felt like it was so long when we couldn't go anywhere. What is that deep powerful urge of wanderlust or whatever it is. My younger brother right now is is traveling the world. There's a certain age when it is just insatiable if you're lucky enough to be able to do it. What do you think it is? There's a beautiful word in French. It's called dépaysement. And there's no equivalent in other languages, at least in English or German. Like so much, like so much in French, no equivalent. And dépaysement comes from the word pays, country, and it means to be kind of being stripped of your own country. And it's the feeling when you get somewhere else of just not recognizing, you know, the street sign, not recognizing um, the mountain behind you, not recognizing the local population. It's just a very high sense of exotic um, feeling. And it's something I think we all crave is just to wake up somewhere where we can either reinvent ourselves, or that might be a bit cheesy, but at least um, find something new and discover something new away from the normal everyday routine. And I think that's what obviously we all, we were all lacking for two years during the pandemic. And this revenge travel is is really vibrant nowadays. It's a very strong thing. So I think that that comes from that wish to, to visit something you cannot have at home. It seems so paradoxical that you get to know yourself by going to somewhere that is completely different from the place you came from and the place you were formed. It's just a fascinating phenomenon. I think especially when we start to do this form of travel as a species where we not just go, but then return. Like, what would happen to a society if something like study abroad or a gap year for young people was, you know, almost mandatory? What do you think that does to a generation if they have more access to travel at a young age? I could be a little bit controversial and and say that we may be heading in that direction. Of course, travel is not given to everyone. It's still a very expensive practice and there are there's an right. awful lot of people stripped of that right or stripped of that pleasure. But I think slowly we are getting to that situation where travel is accessible to more people. Where study abroad, you know, many universities make it compulsory. You know, your third year, you should go abroad. You should have an internship. You shouldn't be just in your on your normal campus. So that form of ritual is getting there. On the one hand, and on the other hand, you have countries around the world that may all be starting to look the same, to look a little bit westernized. And, you know, you may find a Starbucks everywhere and you might feel a little bit less, a little bit less exotic. That lovely French word I used earlier, you might feel it a bit less. So in a way, we could be saying we are heading for that kind of normalized travel, not being travel anymore, just being a change of scenery, but not having the the power it used to have. It might be a danger, but it, it might push us to go further and into less known places, less known cultures. I think we'll keep doing that. I think there's still a lot of place on earth to, to keep doing that. But um, 
we are heading, I think, in a very more homogenized form of society. And that's a bit sad that we might be losing a bit of that of that exoticness. And um, but I think travel will keep moving us. And we've seen it after two years. We still need to do it. If I go back to, you know, the, the 19th century, 20th century, traveling would include an awful lot of description of the other, you know, of, of those those Germans, they're mm. not like me, or those Spaniards, they're not like me. And that is, I think this is hugely fading away. You have that national filter less and less. Paradoxically, we are going back to the early modern period where borders were not so important in the 15th, 16th century. Mm. There's less border crossing effect. It's a bit sad because there's less excitement in terms of the of the description you may have or the feeling you may have. But you might be getting to a more globalized world. And indeed, as you said, it might make us understand us a bit more as a species, as one united humankind, as opposed to, you know, comparing nationalities. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I still get very excited when I get a new stamp, but I can see how that, and I should, and I will always. Okay, wait, I have one last question before we part. If, If you had your total druthers, what would you change about the way we travel now? What would you want to instill in the traveling public that's missing from the experience, from uh, the thought process around it in, the, in this moment. It's the interaction between locals and and visitors. I think we still haven't got it right in in 500 years of, of modern travel. But I think that's the one thing I might want to keep digging to try to uh, make the interactions better because there are loads of places that are just not where you have two worlds colliding, you know, the, the local reality and uh, and the beauty that you see on Instagram or anything. So I think there's still a lot of work to do. It's fascinating. Thank you so much, Jordan. Thank you for having me. This little world feels so big sometimes. I've been very lucky to travel, but... There are so many places I've never been, so many places I'll likely never go. It haunts me. I won't see it all. And yet, I've been able to see so much more of it than my ancestors could have ever dreamed of seeing. Once I was on my way to a party or something where I wasn't going to know anyone, and I remember looking up at the moon on my way and thinking, I might be uncomfortable, out of my element in a new city, but at least it's still Earth. Something to think about next time you're on an adventure in unfamiliar territory. Thank you so much for joining me today to Jordan Jardin and to my friend Jedediah Jenkins, who's the author of To Shake the Sleeping South and Like Streams to the Ocean. And he's also amazing on Instagram. Follow him at Jedediah Jenkins. Our theme music is by Evgeny Kumenko. Additional music in this episode by Spear Fisher and Blue Dot Sessions. My producer is Dale McGowan. Strange Customs is a production of Only Sky Media. Visit us online at onlysky.media slash strangecustoms. And subscribe to Strange Customs with Sasha Sagan wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in next time for more Strange Customs. Strange Customs.